You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 58 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 17th of May, 2018. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. And Asha King. Sorry, uh, sorry for the delay, guys. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Bit of a reoccurring theme now. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think we just need to stop apologizing and uh, just own it. <laughs> I like to think it's worth the wait. So we now have listeners a jacuzzi outside of our recording studio. It is a blow-up jacuzzi. Uh, an inflatable jacuzzi. <laughs> and I feel quite strongly that we should record an episode while we're sitting in the jacuzzi. With your coloured <laughs> apple lights. With the co- So listeners, I do like gadgets a lot. and uh, It's kind we, of your weak point. Yeah. Or strong and, point. <laughs> and I've bought, uh, I've filled our house with those hue light bulbs and I've had a lot of fun presetting routines where they all change colour as the evening goes on. And now that we also have an inflatable jacuzzi, on our terrace. Yeah, it's got a kind of a swingery vibe to like, the house, which I'm not sure is really what I was going for. The, the solution is just don't have the lights fade to red at 8 p.m. Yeah. Like, that's what makes it really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened last night when I was chatting with Kai out on the deck. <laughs> All of a sudden. <laughs> There's just an awkward pause in the conversation and we locked eyes. <laughs> well, Kai, the lights are red now. And I was like, well, Kai, the jacuzzi's right here. <laughs> I didn't bring my swimmers. Sorry, I'm sorry guys. I'm, or you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome, guys. I am so sorry for putting that image in your head when you just tuned in perfectly innocently to a, listen to a surf-based podcast, listeners. Yeah. Loosely based. Loosely based. <laughs> so you guys have both been away, and I, I, I think it's fair to say have probably both been at the very opposite spectrums as far as surf contests go. Yeah, we, we definitely hedged both sides of the coin on this one. So, Ash, you were at the, the Mexi Log Fest. I was. I was there. Was you were actually there as a competitor. Yeah, I was there for, for almost two weeks. And yeah, I just had the best time ever. So, uh, we'll talk about that later in the show. But yeah, I, we'll actually probably talk about it for the next three shows. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. And, Rue, you, uh, you managed to wangle a press pass to the Founders' Cup at the the Kelly Slater Wave Ranch. Yeah, that was a whole lot of fun. And I have done a bit of a 180. No, well, not a 180 on my view of wave pools. I was always kind of curious, but now I'm like a big advocate. Did like Um, a 90. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You did a 90 degree turn. turn. Not a U-turn, maybe an L-turn. But I mixed it up with having a a bit of a road trip around California, which was awesome. And Maureen, my partner, she always... uh, points out that we always go on surf trips and specifically we always go to left-hand reef breaks and as a natural footer who likes things other than surfing strange though that sounds <laughs> when we go on vacation we thought we'd do uh, we thought we'd do some other stuff and it was cool because i haven't really explored california that much before so we went to the to the surf ranch and then we kind of went up to san francisco and just did the tourist thing around you know pier 39 and all of that and then we went down and we went camping in big sur at this place called ventana and when i say camping we, we, yeah, it was. That's not camping. No, I'm not. I I'm saw not, your video. It was pretty pimp. Listeners, if you're ever in a zombie apocalypse with the three of us, it's safe to say that Harry is the person who you want to be with. He's going like, <laughs> to have equipment. He's going to have practical solutions to the problems that you're going to face. I'm going to be absolutely useless. You're going to have a reservation at a great glamping location <laughs> with a lot of good trip advisor reviews. You're going to uh, spend your last couple of days in comfort. Ventana 
in Big Sur, the glamping ground that I went and stayed at was just fantastic. Just want to give a big out shout out to them. And if anyone in the California, Northern California area is looking for a good weekend away, especially a bit of a romantic weekend away, then uh, that's the place to go. It was so beautiful though. We drove, we drove down the coast and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have done this, but it's worth driving from north to south because then you're on the ocean side of the road. And we drove down through Big Sur and that coastal road at like 25 miles an hour, just like old people on cruise control. And we pulled over at pretty much every single stop. And we, you know, we actually had the music off and just the windows down and the cell phone signal just dies. And it was like, it was just beautiful. It was so nice. Do you know one thing as well? I, I, I noticed when your cell phones are dead it, it, and you're hanging out with someone for a long time and Marina and I hang out a lot together anyway but this was just nice because it was just the two of us from, from like linear week and you have conversations and and you know um there's a lulling conversation and you kind of check your phone and you look at an email or you look at social media and then another conversation starts up and when all of that's gone you can have these much longer form conversations where there's like five or ten minutes and then you know you suddenly pick back up because something occurred to you and you haven't got that constant change of topic which kind of cell phones are the catalyst for but, i mean that's that was an aside but it was just something i really really enjoyed about the trip uh, I, I was just going to ask, when was the last time that you drove your car in silence for any length of time? Yeah, no, not very often. Not very often. We did, we did do Fresno to San Francisco listening to Sam Harris debunk the entire historical evidence of Christianity. So that was fun. <laughs> was Keeping nice. it light on the road. Do you know when... <laughs> Straight through the middle of <laughs> hardcore <laughs> conservative. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, we had it like cranking with the windows down. A sort of fact-based noise pollution coming out of the car. Um, but, you know, there were two things that bothered me about being in the States. One thing, and I, this, this is true in Costa Rica too, but there's no, you know how in, in Europe and maybe Australia, you sort of drive in one lane, which is your standard lane. And when you want to overtake, you pull into the next lane. And if you want to overtake, you go into the next lane. But by default, you're all in the lane at the side. Mm-hmm. So everyone's only ever overtaking on one side. Logical system brilliant america amazing roads love how you can just cruise forever with it on cruise control four lanes of traffic anyone's just overtaking anywhere it's absolutely bananas i think that like it is designed for that way like the left lane is the passing lane but i think everyone threw that out of the window immediately uh, they just didn't like being told what to yeah, do it's, it's definitely in the rule book but it's definitely one totally ignored uh, i think yeah. it's actually everyone's pet peeve so i think we could just kind of if we all agreed to just if, if it bothers us all <laughs> Maybe we could just pay attention to the rules. The other thing, we, have you guys ever seen the TV show The Trip with Rob Ryden and Steve Coogan? I have yeah. not. It's really good. It's one of the, my favorite things I've watched. It's just these two guys and they drive around stopping every day in a different restaurant to do a restaurant review. And they're playing, they're both famous comedians and they're playing like parodies of themselves. And the newspaper review that they're doing it for actually doesn't exist. It's just a, it's like a, a portrait of these two people trying to do these restaurant critiques. And it's brilliant. They do one round England and one round Italy and one round Spain. Anyway, it felt a little bit like that. We were just driving from restaurant to restaurant and Maureen and I both really like food and we really like having a bottle of wine with dinner. So we had these like long four hour dinners where we would get through a bottle of wine, eat tons of amazing seafood. It was awesome. But one thing that I've noticed in America, and again, I'm sorry, Americans, I'm just going to (laughs) be, this is my only other American gripe. The portion sizes are like triple what any human being is going to eat. And I don't see why you couldn't just have a bit of legislation that says, a portion size in a restaurant should be just a realistic size for one human to consume. And if you want to have double the portion, you can order two portions and the restaurants can charge less and maybe everyone would just be a little bit less obese 
like I am returning from my week. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm I'm fully on board for that. I just got back from uh, Florida, which probably has a bit of a higher obesity rate than California. And the other portions are just like obnoxiously large uh, and delicious. But I, I think legislation would be a pretty aggressive <laughs> route to take. Yeah, you're probably right. That <laughs> would be a pretty uh, hard line route to take to solve that problem. That's coming from me just sitting there massively too full, hating myself in a restaurant, thinking there should be a law against this. People should not be allowed to do this to themselves. <laughs> well, I, I think surely that's the point. Just because it's on the plate doesn't mean you have to eat it all. Paige does the same thing, my girlfriend, for listeners that, that aren't aware. She's quite a small person. And whatever you put down on a plate in front of her, she eats it and then blames somebody for putting that big plate of food in front of her. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it's okay to just eat. And when you're full, stop eating. Especially in America, where it's almost like default is anything you don't eat, they're going to put in a bag or a box for you to take away. Mm -hmm. They they kind of sneer at you in Europe if you try and do that. Yeah, they do. They don't like that in France. No, they don't like that in France. So, you you know, you need a smaller portion because you've got to eat it all in that one sitting. But in America... Uh, just take it with you. Well, did you. When you guys were kids, did your parents, like finishing the food on your plate was like a thing that your parents always said? I think I think the veggies I had to finish, but I don't think like the protein, like the meat. We Because I remember when I was a kid, you know, you had to finish everything on your plate, otherwise it was wasteful. And I see some of my peers who are parents and they're saying the same things to their kids. And I kind of feel like it's better to teach your kids to stop eating when you're not hungry if it means leaving food on the plate that's fine yeah like sure next time don't give yourself as much but having that skill is an like i can't leave food on a plate like exactly like Paige. but i feel like i wish i had the skill to eat half a plate of food and go you know what that is enough i am done i'm gonna walk away from the cheese board a surfing equivalent like we when you go surfing i feel like you go out and you you wait for a couple really good waves and then you kind of sample a couple good waves and then you're out of there and i'm like the gluttonous american surfer (laughs) when i go out and i am just like feasting on the inside for like six hours and i come in like fat and sunburnt i'm like tried to tie that into surfing that was good that's trying to trying to bring it back in trying to bring it back in just on what we've been up to, did you guys surf in Guiones today? No, I took the dogs for a walk on the beach, and uh, it is—it's pretty big. Yeah, I, I just got back into town, and and um, pretty much haven't even been surfing yet. And I went out on the beach this morning. It's like the biggest Guiones I've surfed, and it had to be years. Mm. I don't know. Uh, the last couple of years, um, we've had high pressure sitting in kind of the central Pacific, which has pushed all the swell south, which is great for a lot of waves around here, but not really great for the wave behind all three of our houses and yeah i walked down there this morning and it was just massive it's meant to get even bigger tomorrow and the swell period's meant to jump up to 20 seconds oh. so i don't know about you guys but if it does get really big do you want to uh organize a boat and go out to that right hand reef that's that's worth a, a text to ask the oracle of the area <laughs> the oracle of the reef yeah <laughs> just viber just sits on a rock out there yeah in the lotus position Okay, a couple of quick news items while we've been away. I guess the biggest one was probably the uh, Margaret River contest starting and then stopping due to a large number of shark sightings. I think it's the first time that a contest has been cancelled because of sight. You know, there, there was no specific problems, but but just a lot of activity in the area. I think there was a, there was an attack further down the coast. Yeah, I think there were there were two non-fatal attacks at a wave down the coast called uh, Cobbles. Mm. So anyway, that's interesting. They are saying that they're going to finish that contest. The prize money's still sitting there, and they're going to run the last few rounds at Uluwatu, which I'm actually pretty excited about. I think that 
the, the last time that they did an event at Uluwatu, it was it was a brilliant event to watch. Yeah, massive two thumbs up to the WSL. That's a really cool move. You trade it out like a sharky. I mean, the the event's pretty good, but yeah, like if it's running at North Point, but Uluwatu is like a massive step up in wave quality, and it's a high performance left. So. I mean, that, that's something that the tour really, really needed. So I, I'm, I think that's a, such a good logistic move by them. Yeah. Uh, and we're recording today just after John John's been knocked out of the Oireo Pro, meaning that he's had a bit of a shocker of a year. But I think he's still in the Margaret River contest. So he'll be surfing, mm-hmm. um, I think, against Mickey Wright. In, in Was it round three they'll be picking up at uh, Uluwatu? I yeah, so, I yeah. think they, they ran the first two rounds and then right on to round three. And that's the kind of wave that John John can do well in. Oh, I mean, yeah. he can do well in any wave. I think it's it's going to be interesting to see who does well there because we haven't had a, a, a wave like that in a while because, I mean, if they're running it, there's a lot of waves at Uluwatu. And like, Temples is a lot different than, like, Outside Corner, which is a lot different than Padang Padang. And my understanding is that kind of all those waves are on the table. So, I don't know. It's going to show an aspect of, of the surface that we haven't necessarily seen in a few years. I think Uluwatu is a really fun place for a, for an event because I mean if they get if they go down to Padang Padang it's obviously a really fun left hand barreling wave, but Uluwatu, which is a much longer wave and has different sections on it, mm-hmm. actually allows for a bunch of of maneuvers rather than you know just barrels. So um, yeah, it should be a really fun event. Plus, I've got a I've just got a real soft spot for Uluwatu. That was I think the first reef break I ever surfed back in the nineties. Really, first time I left the UK and went somewhere was to, to Bali, I think, as a sort of solo surf trip. And um, I remember paddling out Uluwatu and being really intimidated by the coral, having never seen anything like that before. And oh, having to do that walk out through I, the cave. Yeah. And I remember taking off on a wave and being in, inside a barrel for the first time and being completely overwhelmed and getting smashed into the ground. And I still have a scar on my shin from that very wave right now. Nice. <laughs> I think it's going to be a, a great event when they move there. The, the thing I am interested to see, though, is there are quite a lot of events uh, of event sites that are potentially pretty sharky. You know, between J Bay, the the Snapper event on the on the Gold Coast, Margaret Bells. Th- there's a whole ton of them. All the events in Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii's um, got a ton can, of tiger sharks. So you know, is this setting a precedent? Because a, a large proportion of the reason they cancelled was that a lot of the surfers on tour were saying they weren't going to paddle out. So is this setting a precedent for for events being cancelled? I mean, the bottom line is we don't know enough about shark movements, and we don't know exactly how many sharks are out there. We just don't have enough data on it, and it could be one of those things where there's a vast number of. I mean, this is this seems likely to me. There's a vast number of sharks living. Mm-hmm. you know off off the coast of margaret river and that whole area and it's pretty random when there's going to be sightings or attacks just mm-hmm. given the amount of surfers in the water the amount of sharks the fact that there is i don't know a sighting or an attack at, at denmark which is you know down the coast from margaret river um or at yelling up within a certain time frame of a day a week two weeks of when they're running the contest may be in no way predictive of the likelihood of there being an incident during the event. And if and if that is the case, which I think is quite likely, because it's just messy data, it's just noise in the data when these things get noticed, um, then I, I, it's going to be very difficult for the WSL to, to kind of have this precedent of, you know, if there's a certain instance within a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, of course, is, you know, if someone gets attacked at, at 
Ellensbrook and then they run the contacts next day, Margaret River, and someone gets attacked. It does look very much like that was negligence, mm-hmm. even if from a data point of view, it's justifiable. So, I mean, it, it, it is a tricky one. Well, but then it's an especially a tricky one, given that the day before they were sending surfers out with no impact protection, no helmets at exactly. North Point, which is, is crazy shallow. And, you know, you fall in the wrong place there, you're get, going to get slammed into the reef and ripped to pieces. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Like protecting for one element, but not the other. But again, it, I mean, it come, with his, this is part of a much bigger cultural conversation. But, you know, the, th- the things that we're afraid of and worried about are just not the things that we should be afraid of mm. and worried about. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Anyway, we could, <laughs> we could go on a whole non-surfing yeah, tangent yeah. down that rabbit hole. Yeah, just, yeah. One more cultural point on that. I do think it's really cool that the WSL um, respected the surfers and they, they had kind of a like a round table where they talked about it. I, I hats off to the WSL for that. Um, cause it really is easy to be, you know, a keyboard warrior and be like, oh yeah, send them out there. I don't mind sharks. And you know, it's really easy to say that when I'm halfway around the world. Um, however, I do think that it was pretty uncool that Italo Ferreira and Mendina had these massive Instagram tirades before the WSL made the decision. Like they had these like two or three paragraph Instagram things where it was like, oh, my life is worth more than this. And, you know, you know, talking about the negligence of the WSL while they were actively trying to make the decision. And I, I just think that that should have been inward rather than an outward message. Cause you know, just because Medina has like six and a half million followers, like you don't need to, when the WSL was working as hard as they could, you don't need to paint that picture. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought that that was a bit, uh, bit uncool. I get the impression, especially recently under Sophie Goldschmidt's leadership, the WSL's really got its its kind of priorities right and its, yeah. its head in the right place and it's moving in a positive direction. And mm-hmm. I mean, on this podcast, we make a lot of fun of the things that are easy to poke fun at and, and critique about the WSL. But, you know, I, I especially after being at the Founders' Cup yeah. and, and seeing how that whole thing came together, I, you know, it's cool. They're just, they are really heading in the right direction and trying to systematically make everything more professional one step at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. On the subject of the Founders' Cup, um, Kelly Slater got Kelly Slated during the Founders' Cup. Um, the, the day of the, uh, the event, the American Wave Machines released their teaser video of their new facility down in Waco, uh, very much as Slater did a couple of years ago at the end of DeSouza's Yeah, world, that was world DeSouza's title. world title. And then day. the next day he released the, the teaser clip for the, the Wave Ranch. So that looks pretty fun. The, 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 that wave machine pool is up and running and looks like they're able to throw the waves out a little bit quicker than uh, than the Slater machine. I like how the away, American Wave Machine company very much went with the undersell, overperform strategy. Because I, I had never heard of them uh, before there were clips of guys doing backflips. You know, Seth Muniz in the pool and Jamie O'Brien getting barreled. I was like, what? where did this come from? Especially when there's all these wave pool companies that are just talking about their tech and how we're going to make these many waves. And then these these guys in Waco are just like, boom, here's our product done. The um, the, the, the thing that's going to be interesting and, uh, you know, we'll see people riding it and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that pool. But they're saying that they've managed to create proper gravity waves in their pool rather than just displacement waves. And what that will mean is that the flow of water as that wave comes in, the wave will actually be drawing water up the wave face um, and actually sucking water up 
which makes the bottom turn mechanic uh, in, in certain pools. In particular, I know in the, the, the Wave Garden ones in Austin and in the UK, uh, the bottom turn is very different because you're bottom turning in static water rather than in water that's, that's being sucked up the wave face. So you're getting way less projection off your bottom turn. Mm-hmm. How have they managed to do that? Because all, all of these wave pools basically work on a similar principle, which is that you're pushing some kind of plow through the water. The, 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 the joyous thing is that all of the technology is patented, but they won't tell you how it works, which I don't get. If, if I go, keep it secret, fine. But if once you patented it, no one can take it. It's, yeah. it's, it's protected. You might as well give us all the details, show us the machinery, give us the schematics. Like We're not allowed to copy it anyway. I was under the impression that the American Wave Machine, it's, it's a... It's pressurized chambers, isn't it? It's like I, th- a- I, I believe that what... So American Wave Machines did a presentation at the Surf Park Summit uh, that I went to a couple of years ago. And they were talking about using, uh, yeah, not uh, low pressure chambers, but almost like bellows to move air and water backs and forwards mm-hmm. between two chambers that would displace the water. So for our listeners, can you describe what the American Wave Machine wave looks like compared to the Kelly Slater wave? I mean, visibly from what we've seen on those videos, um, it looks very similar. You've got a big uh, concrete wall rather than the the, the sort of mesh that that the Slater one has running along the side where the the, the mechanical arm goes through. They've just got a big concrete wall running down the side, Mm -hmm. but otherwise it's it's a big empty lake. um, And then you have uh, waves running down the length of it. There seems to be, when they're sending the waves out, it looks like there's, there's three or maybe four rideable waves coming out in sequence, one behind the other. And I don't know whether that's a deliberate, like they can just keep pumping the waves out but they only had four riders in, so that's the number of waves they showed, or whether it's a byproduct of the way they're making the waves that it produces four waves as a set and then pause and wait. Yeah, so I actually just saw some footage that came out this morning as well as like aerial footage, and the footprint of the pool is like less than a quarter probably. It's a way, way smaller footprint, and it's a way shorter uh, riding time. So just for the listeners, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the videos of Kelly Slater's wave pool. We'll get way more into this later. But the Kelly Slater wave is really long and perfect. And, you know, almost to its detriment, it's so flawless that it, it, it doesn't give you uh, as as much to, to play with. And the Waco pool has a closeout section. So especially just when you're talking about progression of surfing, you can go out and you can hit the same wave, you know, 25 times in an hour, whereas the Slater pool has a little bit more of a time constraint. So I think the Slater pool wins out in a dominant fashion uh, on wave quality, but the Waco pool wins out a lot more in as a maybe a gym or a training ground for the actual ocean or in progressing maneuvers. Yeah, very interesting. Final piece of news, the Andy Irons documentary Kissed by God has been released. It premiered in uh, Los Angeles last week. And yeah, it's going to be out for downloads and all the, all those normal things. And I'm sure doing the uh, film festivals over the next few months. What do you think of that name? I got to see the movie, but I don't really get it. The reference to Kissed by God is how Andy Irons described the sensation of surfing. It was like being kissed by God. Oh, that is, that's more poetic. Yeah. I like it. He was, he was, huh. I don't think he was a particularly religious person, but he just used that, that, that euphemism. It's such a bummer that there's not more footage of Andy Iron surfing in, um, in 1080 HD, you know, because almost yeah. all that footage of him is in, is in video, like VHS video kind of quality. Mm-hmm. 
I love watching him surf those kind of six two, six threes, really narrow, long, high rocker boards. Oh, then They're just the, so smooth and powerful. And the footage of him on the big boards at Desert Point is just, oh, it's such good surfing. Yeah. So, and I, I guess connected to the Andy Irons documentary coming out, Chaz Smith's book uh, on the history of and connection between cocaine and surfing uh, has just hit the shops as well, which I don't know whether that was a deliberately timely release, but um, I have actually read uh, an early copy of it and it, it does mention Andy's passing as a fairly big cornerstone of the book. So I feel like just knowing Chaz's internet personality, I feel like Chaz would definitely try to drop it right as the movie was going to be released. Just for his own amusement. Yeah, just for his own amusement. Yeah, I feel like that might possibly be the case. Um, anyway, if, if listeners, if you want to have a, a little read of the book, maybe we'll do a little uh, book review on it in a future episode. So the first thing you notice when you arrive at the Kelly Slater wave pool is that this thing is massive. People were parking and they were bussing them in and, and very kindly the WSL extended a media pass to me so I got to park in the VIP bit, which I, I felt very pleased with myself for as we were waved through to the VIP parking. Once we got inside the event, I realized that actually there was, of the 5,000 people there, there was probably a thousand of them were VIP. So it wasn't that V, it was more just IP or just really some peas. But we, <laughs> we pulled up at one, end of the, at one end of the wave park and then the, the entrance was down at the other end. The, the scale of it just doesn't come across when you're watching videos. Um, and we're walking down along and everyone's kind of queuing to go in. And, and it's a really nice vibe. Like conversation is just kind of springing up between people. They're, they're just chatting with each other. And you, there's, like, everyone's really excited. It's almost like kids going to a birthday party. And it was kind of cool and something I noticed about the event. And, and I wrote about this in the article that I, I put up on Surf Simply magazine. But it's not like it was a different crowd to what you'd get at regular surf events. But it definitely felt like a filtered crowd. There wasn't any of the people who just, you know, are in Hosgore anyway or on the North Shore anyway and figure there's a surf contest going and they'll just go and hang out. You know, everyone's paid for at least $100 for a ticket. Um, I think it was like 99 for a regular ticket and it was like 500 for a VIP ticket and then it was 5,000 if you wanted to have a VIP ticket and then surf the wave afterwards. Mm. So, and the whole thing was at capacity. All of the, all of those tiers were sold out completely. But so everyone who was there was like really into surfing and really wanted to, to watch the event. Um, and it was, and it was great. I mean, it was like, it was like being in, it was like being there with just a group of our podcast listeners and everyone kind of geeking out on the same thing. It was a really nice vibe, really unpretentious. Do you think that, because obviously this, this event has been a great success, it completely sold out. You know, this was the first time that regular people were given access to go and stand on the sidelines and watch that wave. Do you think that will carry on? With future events, you know, we've got the, the, the CT event later this year and there's going to be regular events now. So I think it very much could. I don't think it will at a $100 to $5,000 price point mm. uh, because it's just going to lose exclusivity. You know, it, it, it may be if it was like a world title showdown, but for a one of 12 event season, I could I, I don't see it carrying on at that price point. What does a what does a ticket to like a baseball game or a basketball game or? football well, game a, a baseball game is there's so many events in their schedule uh like they, they play nearly every day so it's like i think you can get tickets for like 10 or 15 bucks right but an nfl game which is every week would be 
like you probably call it fifty to a hundred dollars a bit like a, quite a bit more for a good ticket I think a better comparison just in terms of pr- ticket price point is probably something like a golf tour or a tennis tour mm. you know I don't know what a ticket to like Wimbledon costs now well Wimbledon's a nightmare no, nobody can get hold of tickets to Wimbledon oh, right. God knows what they're worth so I, I'm going to disagree with you Asher and I, and I want to like paint a little picture for you guys and for our listeners of, of what the event was like purely as a spectator and and afterwards let, let, let's talk a little bit about what we think the the intended and unintended consequences of a wave pool based event might be in terms of logistics and surfing and coaching but just purely as a spectator event the well I'll, I'll describe to you how it was and then I'll tell you what my take home was afterwards so we kind of come around, come around the top and there's, you enter at the top of the wave pool and then there's a, a stand at one end and a stand at the other end. And those are kind of VIP stands where you've got the surfer coming at you. And then you can line up the whole length of the side of the pool. And then there's another sort of VIP stand which is right in the center of the pool so that you see half of both waves. The side of the pool slopes away downhill which is the first thing that you realize when you're kind of walking up to actually look over and look over the wall and uh, as a regular spectator to see what's going on so the whole of this um, stadium has been designed as a prototype machine for creating waves it's not been designed as an event venue and if you had an event venue you could have a massively greater number of people and and i think it would be an absolutely spectacular event because even with the logistical problems that they had it was still spectacular so what i mean is you walk up to the wall and you stand there looking over and the ground slopes back for about six feet and then it starts dropping downhill a little bit and by the time you're about 15 feet away from the wall of the pool you're too low to actually see over the wall and see anything mm-hmm. so it's exactly the opposite of what you would want to have a stadium it's like having a stadium with the seats sloping downhill instead of uphill so you could really only have like two people standing the whole length of the pool you know and then maybe like a taller person behind looking over their shoulders so it was really really limited in terms of how many people could actually be there watching it and it was and it was kind of cool it was it kind of felt like they'd bootstrapped it like they had they had logs that they'd sliced into piles so that people could stack up logs and stand at the back and look over other people's <laughs> shoulders they had a real like kind of folksy family picnic feel to the whole thing oh maureen got a absolutely amazing photo of somebody standing on one of the logs one of the ones used in your article was, okay. uh, that was such a cool photo i like that photo i thought that was a really cool one um so, you know, you're standing along there, but, but this is what's cool about it. So, first of all, imagine instead of just being a couple of people there, you've got like an, either a nice big grassy bank going all the way up where you could have, instead of 5,000 people at this event, you could have, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people mm-hmm. and all still much closer to the action than you are at any beach break event I've been to, with the exception of that one wave where you happen to just be on the right bit of the Hossegore, you know, La Gravier mm-hmm. sandbank and the surfer comes right past you. You know, so there's a 10 day event. You might have a few moments where you happen to be that close as you would be as one of a crowd of 20 or 30,000 right next to the wave pool for every single wave all day. If you watch the webcast of a J-Bay or any other event, you actually kind of almost feel more in the action by watching it on TV than you do when you're there on the sand and the action's happening hundreds of yards down the beach from you and way out in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of, everyone's chatting away right along the side of the pool. 
And then you just hear this, uh, you hear the machine start to sort of make this ticking, whirring noise, kind of like a roller coaster winding up. And then the plough starts moving through. It looks like the front of an old-fashioned locomotive or an icebreaker kind of ploughing through the water. Mm-hmm. And the surfer is actually standing in waist-depth water about maybe 20 or 30 yards in from the edge of the pool. Then the wave starts to build up. And then the surfer doesn't so much paddle for the wave as more just like steps onto the board, like really? onto their belly. And then kind of just comes, does one or two strokes and gets to their feet. And you could see as the day went on that the surfers were obviously enjoying seeing how little work they could do <laughs> to catch the wave. Like at the start, you know, they're, they're sort of lining up and paddling pretty hard to catch it. Medina, by the end, would be standing there with his board upside down, you know, checking his fins with his back to the wave, even when the machine started. And then just as the machine, as the wave was about two meters behind him, he would just turn his board over, lie on it paddle like once or twice and stand up and then he'd just be up and going which is kind of pretty cool that's so interesting that's that's the first time i've ever heard that yeah it's awesome yeah i i for some reason i thought it was like you had the angle at the wall and there's all this position that's really cool no i mean i think i think it's tricky the first time you do it but watching those guys clearly as soon as you get it as soon as you get to get it down mm. and you're like, okay, I just need to stand here by this thing. And it's super easy. And then, you know, the wave starts coming down and there's this like Mexican wave of, of roaring and cheering and hooting that follows the wave down the length of the pool. So you sort of hear it really far away coming towards you. And just as the wave comes past you, so like the noise of the crowd comes towards you and then, and then past you and then disappears off down the other end. And it's like half a mile long. So you're really aware of that movement of noise and excitement going down the length of the pool. And as the, as the wave comes towards you, it gets, it gets like really loud. And I couldn't work out why it was, but we had, you know, Joe Trapel doing his dulcet tones over the speakers. Uh, and just before the wave gets to you, it completely cuts off the sound of all of the commentary. And, 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 the, and the noise of the wave overwhelms most of the sound of the, of the crowd that's further down as well. So it's almost like the noise builds and then it just goes quiet. And then you just hear this like as the wave comes towards you and suddenly it's like peaking and the surfers setting up for the barrel or doing increasingly more difficult and less likely to land maneuvers as you know they get more and more risky as the wave goes on and they go right past you and it's really cool and everyone suddenly has got their cameras out and they're kind of shouting all around you and then the wave disappears past and behind the wave there's the wake which is smashing into the wall on the side you know just like when you have a wave hitting a seawall like a 45 degree angle shooting spray up in the air so that kind of follows a couple of seconds behind the wave and everyone's leaning over with their cameras showing and then suddenly there's this like splash and everyone's like hiding all their camera equipment and ducking yeah and then and then that disappears and everyone suddenly comes up again and then they can't see the wave so they're looking up at the monitor to see what happened on the last bit of the wave and if you see them going for an air on the monitor you then glance back at the wave to see their body pop up from behind and then look back at the monitor to kind of see if they land it or not they get to go up and down each way but then uh, they'll they'll do their other wave and then at the end of their turn when they've had two waves the the jet ski will kind of do a bit of a glory run all the way along the edge of the pool and they're kind of shouting and cheering and the whole crowd's cheering and then they go back and then the whole thing's finished and that whole thing took a few minutes and then there's kind of everything settles down and the machine goes quiet and everyone starts chatting and talking and and then a few minutes later you just sort of forget that it's all happening and you just suddenly hear this like and you feel the wave start, the, the machine starting to start up again. And you're suddenly reminded, oh, we've got another wave going. And it starts all over again. And at no point during that whole cycle do you ever feel bored. 
And when you're away, when you're at a surf contest, even a really good surf contest, there's definitely times when you kind of zone out, you forget what's going on. The, the ocean goes flat for 10 or 15 minutes or for a whole heat. And there's something about that rhythm of just action, few moments downtime, the build-up of the noise, the action, few moments downtime. We got there at eight in the morning and suddenly it was just four o'clock in the afternoon and the whole day had gone. It was, and it was just the most fun day out. So that, that was my impression. And I, and I think a lot of that in response to what you said is like, it has got longevity to it. I don't think that was novelty. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I, certainly I can, having sat on the beach and watched surf contests, you know, what you do tend to see is that, that you get nothing happening, nothing happening, nothing happening, and a set will come through and both surfers in the water will catch a set wave. So there's that, that real flurry and then maybe 10 minutes of nothing happening. And like you say, although three minutes between waves sounds like quite a long time to have to wait for something to happen. I was watching at home and it didn't feel like, you know, that was a nice rhythm. It wasn't like a constant, oh my God, there's stuff happening. It was that there was a wave and then there was time to watch the replays and see what happened. And So I consumed this event in like a, way that i normally don't for because I, I i pretty much religiously watched the wsl mm-hmm. so i i was i was in mexico at the time for the event so I, I couldn't really connect i watched maybe one heat on wi-fi and so i i watched the results package afterwards and kind of the big takeaway from it was like i really wanted to surf the wave it looked mm-hmm. like so much fun but being super into surfing it was like excruciatingly boring watching the package because it was super hard to decipher what surfers were doing. I mean, they were just doing the, it was with the same wave and the same equipment. There was not much variability between the two. And now I I think a lot of that is I wasn't watching it live and I I know it was on CBS. I, everyone I've talked to at the event just had such an amazing time, but watching it in hindsight was like really, really tough. One thing that I was really surprised about watching it, and this is, goes to a comment that you made before about how the waves are all kind of the same mm-hmm. and it's not, and it's not, you don't have that variety. Um, I was really surprised when you were there at the event, how different all the waves were from each other. Really, like the a, a way lot, they were surfed or the actual style of the, wave? A, the actual wave itself, huh. you know, like people would pull into barrels and you just didn't know whether they were going to come out. You didn't know whether they were going to make past, you know, mm-hmm. whether they were going to go too deep, whether the wave was going to run a little faster, a little slower. Slater was doing, you know, a big turn over a section and the wind had picked up a little bit and the section broke a little far in front of him and he got stuck in the white wall and he couldn't get around and he ended up, mm-hmm. you know, that was that nice photo that we have at the top of the article was where Slater got stuck in the foam halfway down and then he just, you know, he walked along next to the crowd and everyone was applauding him, not for having fallen off, but for having put this whole thing together, you know. Yeah. But the point is, I was really surprised how different the waves were, especially as the winds changed. I don't know why. Some of the waves would come through and there was just not much of a barrel to be had. Some of them went super hollow. Some of the sections you had to eye up really closely to know whether you could release the fins, whether mm-hmm. you'd have to like carve the board all the way around. Even that wake hitting the hitting the seawall, hitting the, the the lake wall, the pool wall, whatever, going up in the air was significantly different on each wave. That's so interesting. So I was I was surprised how there was different sections on the wave for sure. Um, 
but they were all different from each other. Just not not as different, obviously, as, as beach break waves or, or even as ocean waves, but there was enough variation that I didn't feel a sense like, oh, here we go again, more of the same. Mm-hmm. I just, I'd never had that feeling watching it. Yeah, just coming from we are watching it in hindsight, I don't know. And I think a lot of this might change with, you know, people having you know, the longer you have to surf in the pool. But yeah, I, I don't know. There just wasn't much it, it, viewing from the computer. There wasn't much variation. It was like really, really similar. Their setup times, like all the equipment looked really, really similar, which I think is something that'll change a lot. I think people are going to start putting their equipment really towards how they want to surf the pool. And I think that's going to, you know, open up a massive amount of progression. But when I watched it, it was a lot like when I turn, you know, snowboarding big air half pipe on in the Olympics where I watched like three runs and every run I'm like, wow, that was amazing. Wow. That was amazing. Ah, that's an athletic feat. But I couldn't sit and watch it for that long. Like I, I, I couldn't really, like spent, I, I don't know. See the interesting thing there. And and the thing that I thought was the the one thing that I felt they didn't do very well for this event, viewing it remotely, I can watch the half pipe event and uh, 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 you know snowboarding or something like that, and I can sit and watch it and watch it and watch it and watch it because they do a really good job of keeping you informed of the situation. Mm-hmm. Of this person is currently in second place, they need to score X number of points to go into first place. The commentators are, are well aware of what maneuvers each competitor is is likely to be doing and 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 how the mm-hmm. run's going to go, and so they're they're really able to talk through the, the those those nuances in in the ride. And I thought that the WSL did a very bad job of that in this event because when I was watching, the only thing you could really tell was was what team somebody w- was surfing from mm-hmm. because of the color of their jersey and and beyond that you didn't really get the scores mm-hmm. watching it you know you, you're sitting there watching it you didn't really hear what their score was and when you did hear their score you didn't hear how that related to the team situation mm-hmm. there wasn't like even just sitting on the screen you know normally when there's a, a ct heat on and it's got the red and the blue and what their scores are and red needs three points and mm-hmm. blue currently has priority. That was, there was no, it was just a clear blank screen. But I, I think I, I, I agree with you. And actually mm. at the event, I didn't have a scoreboard near me cause we were sitting in the media bit right in the middle. Yeah. Um, and the scoreboards were either. And, and most of the time I didn't know what was going on score wise. Mm. And it mm-hmm. was just, I was just really enjoying the surfing as was everyone else. And, and I, I'm sure that you're right. And you know, the commentators were unfamiliar with the contest format and they probably could have been better at knowing how to explain it quickly. Yeah. Um, but I think it's kind of irrelevant because that's quite an easy fix. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not a fundamental problem with wave pools. So I, so just to, to speak to what you just said, Asha, and then to circle back around to that. So I think that I would rather watch a good, let's call it an ocean event, mm-hmm. <laughs> which might be a new phrase we have to get used to saying, on a webcast. Mm-hmm. I would definitely prefer to be, a, a, in terms of a live event, I would rather be there in person at the wave pool. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Unless it was like something abs- exceptional, like, you know, epic Fiji or Chopu or Pipe. But, you know, again, you can't predict that, which is kind of half of the point. Yeah. So I, I'd, I think I'd rather watch a webcast of J-Bay, but I'd rather be at the surf ranch. Um, so... And then going back to the score thing, I, I want to just talk for a little bit about a couple of the things that 
you know they got wrong which are not a big deal at all but they're just going to get which I think they're going to get right in future or make a difference so for one thing I don't feel like anyone cared who won this event they were so excited to just be there mm-hmm. and they were so excited to surf the wave pool I think between the surfers themselves they all wanted to get the clip that was going to go viral on Instagram and was going to be used and posted everywhere. So there was kind of that bit of competition. But but generally, I think people were more excited by the event and what was happening than by actually the competition side of it. When we revisit the wave pool in future as in a similar sort of team-based format or whether it's uh, as part of the tour, then it's going to mean a lot more. And, I, and I'm sure that that kind of communication problem that you described will be fixed very quickly. Um, other things, you know, as I mentioned, they need to fix the whole seating area and they mm-hmm. could have 10 times the crowd there and it not be a problem and everyone have a great view just, just by having a good stadium or a slope coming up away from the pool. One thing that Max, friend of the show and Surf Simply guest, who's actually um, in charge of sales and, and marketing for the, the Kelly Slater Wave Company, one thing he was talking about that they were discussing sort of behind the scenes was to, to hide the mechanism and the engine and all of that coming along and everyone I spoke to you know and and as I already said I I think actually seeing that was part of the fun hearing the noise and seeing the machine moving through the water Uh, just to digress for a second there's so many technological advances these days which happen inside a magic black Mm -hmm. box and we just see an app change or whatever and we don't really get to see the mechanics and watching this big like you know locomotive type thing move through the water reminded me of how it must have felt hundreds of years ago when people saw like a steam engine for the first time mm-hmm. when technology was like big and moving in front of you and, and really exciting and you could see all the parts moving and I thought that was really cool as well as the noise but everyone's on one side of the pool it's not like you're on both sides and everyone's looking at the side where that locomotive goes up and down and I imagine that whole back half of the pool will all just be advertising boards you've got yeah. 700 meters you know as high as you want to go that can all be advertising and that will be like such a bummer. It will be so ugly if you're just looking at advertising logos the whole way down the side of the pool. But It'll be like a NASCAR stadium. Yeah, but fiscally, I can't see how they could justify not doing that. It's such an easy win from an advertising point of view. Just on your idea of the technology, I think that covering the train would be a huge mistake because as Kelly Slater's wave pool, you don't you don't need to impersonate the ocean. What you have is is amazing. And I think highlighting the fact that it is man-made is, is just, it's not only fine, it's it's better. I think as soon as you start to try to hide that, you're being dishonest because you'll never, I, I, I see as this progresses, I don't think the pool is ever going to beat the ocean at being the ocean, just as the ocean's never going to beat the pool as perfection. You know, so, so having that contrast is... A lot of the discussion online has been people getting upset that this is changing surfing in a, in, a, in a negative way because it's never going to replace the ocean. Nobody at this event was saying that this is replacing the ocean. This is, this is just a new fun thing. I, you know, I, I think it's unambiguously positive. Yeah, and I, I mean, we'll get back on this when, when we're talking about the Mexico event later. But I mean, as this pushes forward, it, it's not like one replaces the other. There's room for everything. It's not binary. It's not like, oh, we have Absolutely. wave pools or we have the ocean, just as it's not, oh, we have long boards, we have short boards. You know, you can, like, you know, there, this is, it's it's not dividing up the surfing pie differently. It's, it's just making the pie bigger. Nice analogy. Better. <laughs> I do like a good analogy. That's a good one. So I, I, what you were saying about the advertising, I felt that that was, again, in fairness, this might not be the WSL. Headline sponsor for the founder event was what? Michelob Ultra. Michelob Ultra. What is it? 
It's a oh, light it's beer. It's the most disgusting beer that you've ever drank. It's a very light beer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing you know that because you're at the pool. Maybe it's an American brand. I watched the entire. Yes. I watched two days of that event. I never saw anything to contextualize or explain who this headline sponsor was. It was just the name. And they kept saying the name and the name and the name. There wasn't a single advert for them played in the spaces mm-hmm. between waves. There wasn't a single uh, banner for them. There were, there were five or six sponsors of the event. And, you know, you would see it looked like the, the, the main building for the, for the offices and things like that. Mm-hmm. They had various sponsorship logos over it. Yeah. Again, nothing. Nothing on the webcast at all. Yeah, but again, I think sponsors. This, this, was all, this was all like, this was a, a, boot, this was oh, a yeah, bootstrapped yeah. event as a, as a proof of concept. And I think all of those kind of details... They can scale and, and, and solve very easily, but they probably just wanted to make sure everything worked first. Well, but here's the thing. They did that. They did that last year. Well, yeah, but this was the first one that was open to the public and as a live webcast. So it was like it was one iteration further. And I don't think yeah. anyone at the WSL is pre- pretending that this was like the final mm. finished product. It was mm. just the next step in, in, kind of in, in, in reiterating what a contest at, at a wave pool looks like. Yeah. I don't know. I, f- I feel like there were, there were some misses. The, the, the final I mean, thing- I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the big miss was just the lunch queues. Like it was, <laughs> it was ridiculous. They had like three or four places that did food. And even the VIP place has free food, but the queue for the food was like an hour and a half long. And that was, that was the biggest bummer about the whole day being yeah. there. There just was not enough food to go around. But it's funny. That's, a, that's like a, such a, like an NFL problem. Or like, I'm sure, you know, a big uh, like soccer event. It's just like, oh, damn, the food line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, the final thing, actually, with the advertising that, that I realized, we've spoken about this before, and we were, talk- we were talking about it in terms of, you know, adjusting the resolution on the video so that it streams nicely, and that every time it would switch to adverts, you couldn't adjust yeah. the resolution, and so your, it would all slow so down. freezes. Right. The problem that they had, they, they, they had the same thing going through this event, but obviously the advertising gaps were quite carefully timed. And they had the same problem. And so me watching on slightly shifty internet down here in Costa Rica, we would quite often come back halfway through a wave. Yeah, that, the happens, that happens in normal contests too. And it really, really bugs me. But in a normal contest, they can't predict it. In a normal contest, they have a, a 30 or 40 second ad that, that they have to stick in and they look at it and they go, okay, I, I, it doesn't look like there's a wave coming. They're halfway through the ad and, and, and a wave comes along. But with this event, they know to the second when that wave's going to come. And I sus- either they mucked up and put in ads at the wrong time. But what I suspect happened is that they did the same thing and those little advertising things were coming through at different resolution were slowing the internet down slightly. Mm. And so that when we came back to in the, the live of broadcast, it was mid-wave. We've had a lot of critiques of the WSL over the years that have magically come to fruition, and I feel like this has got to be the next one. <laughs> I like think figuring that ad buffering, it, that just has to be that. That's so. It's a low-hanging fruit. They can they can fix that easy. I was chatting with a few of the guys who were organizing the event when I was there, and the feeling of the whole thing was very much like they were walking around, not literally, but pretty much with notepads, just taking notes of everything that they were going to do better next mm-hmm. time. You, you got the feeling this was like a real kind of like, oh, how does this work, and how can we change this, and how can we do that better? It was a really exciting kind of vibe of innovation. So um, I'm sure the next ones, well, because they, they've got the CT event in September. Mm-hmm. And that that there is going to be a bit more, you know, 
sponsorship involved, there's going to be a bit more on the line in terms of, of world championship points and prize money. So that they really do need to get that one right. I, I really I really hope that they don't put so much advertising in there that it kind of kills the fun watching it. I mean, yeah. I, I'm quite fortunate in as far as I, I have, haven't had to watch cable TV for a long time. But whenever I turn on cable TV, I find the, the amount of ads make it un, totally unwatchable. And it would be easy to throw in an ad between every single wave. That's what they did. And to have the whole of the back wall all ads. Mm-hmm. And it would still be a great live event to go to, but it would just, it would just take the edge off for me a little bit. But I, I really, I find ads just generally like really infuriating wherever they pop up i I would always pay a premium to not have ads on anything yeah if you're listening facebook (laughs) (laughs) so sophie goldschmidt i had you know she said that they are looking to build a pool in tokyo do you think that this is the likely choice for the olympics i mean you were there with and saw the format with the nation versus nation does it Uh, yeah absolutely it was cool that the world surf team won I, w- I did hear the podcast where you were laughing at the fact that I was choosing to go along to an event where it was a country country <laughs> thing, given how much I dislike the whole flag waving and nation things. Um, you know, I always think it's kind of ridiculous that people are, are proud of which entirely arbitrary line they happen to fall out of their mother's vagina within. So I was very, very happy when the world team won. I was like, in your face, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I- and it was cool, actually. Geordie's speech that he gave at the end, I don't know if you guys saw this, but... Um, he said two really funny things that made me laugh. One was he sort of had clearly slightly forgotten the format of the contest when he was giving his his winning speech. And he was like, oh, and then we got to that like surf off thing or whatever. And we won that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. And then he, he, you could see him like, oh, I need to compose myself and, and, and deliver a more kind of articulate leadership style team captain kind of thing. And so he turns to the other team to magnanimously congratulate them. And he goes, of course, Team Australia were really strong, but I guess we were just stronger. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, to answer your question, I, I, I think the organisers at Tokyo have fairly strongly said that they want to do it at, at the beach. I think Japan obviously has a pretty big mm-hmm. surf industry and they're, they're, they're tapping into that. I suspect they're pushing for Paris. Ah. which is the 2024 Olympics. My guess is if surfing goes well in the 2020 Olympics, that it may well be a a demonstration event in France as well, because it's a popular sport over there. And then, you know, there isn't an obvious venue anywhere near Paris that that, that they could run a surf event. So the the, the wave pool technology would suddenly be a very strong What time of year is the summer? The summer Olympics is kind of August, isn't it? Well, it it varies. It depends on the country. Because I guess if you're in September, you could do it in south of France. One thing I thought that was quite cool as well on stage at the end was that Fernando Aguirre came on stage, the president of the ISA, and he was introduced by Sophie Goldschmidt, who's the CEO of the WSL, and she congratulated him for all of his work getting surfing into the Olympics. And I seem to remember they even maybe kind of, oh, they they brought out an Olympic flag that all of the competitors had signed, and they presented it to him, and then he got a big round of applause from the WSL. Um, So there there was clearly a big push, you know, to to get this into the Olympics and, and, and to show that the WSL and the dub and the ISA were together and on board with mm-hmm. trying to get surfing in the Olympics together, which is a new thing. Cause they've, they've been very at odds with their, their long-term goals. And, you know, the ISA games and the WSL events have always, there's always been a bit of opposition between the two. Mm-hmm. The other people on stage that I thought was really cool was I was kind of looking up 
and I, this is this is how dumb I'm capable of being. <laughs> I looked up on the stage and I was like, "Oh, that's Robert Bartholomew's up there." It's like, "Oh, and Ian Kens, and there's Pete, and I think that's Fred Hemmings up there. Uh, oh, and there's Sean Thompson." Um, and then I was like, "That's really cool that they've got all of these like old." <laughs> wait a minute, found uh, the Founders Cup. Oh, oh yeah, like yeah. I get it. That's why they're up there. <laughs> so. There's obviously a lot of advantages to the wave pool and we've talked on the podcast a lot before and I'm sure we will again about how it's going to be in this incredible coaching tool because you can isolate variables and you can decide which thing you're going to coach um, at any one time. You know, you're going to look at timing, maneuver choice, body mechanics. And I think we're going to see this leapfrog um, in surfing ability by those people who regularly have access to coaching at the wave pool, especially, you know, young kids that are now coming mm -hmm. up, just being coached there every single day. We're going to see performance levels just go through the roof. Combinations of aerials being, being strung together in the way that you see in a half pipe with a snowboard. And I'm sure that, you know, the surfing that at the moment blows our minds that Felipe Toledo and Medina are doing will just look very, very kind of conservative and, and safe compared to what we're going to see in 10 years time as a result of this technology. Um, so uh, I'm really excited to see that. But I guess the last thing that I'll, I'd like to say is that I'm really interested at the moment in just looking at what the unintended consequences of, of technology are. And, um, and it'll be really interesting to see what the the, what the knock-on effects of, of this will be. So it'll certainly be something that we'll be tracking over uh, the coming years. Over the last year, getting the new resort, the new Surf Symphony Resort project together and, and bringing together all of the pieces of the puzzle that are required there uh, and just knowing what a huge amount of work has gone into it, I can't even imagine how much of his heart and soul Kelly Slater must have poured into having the idea of building this man-made wave and then finishing by having this event there last month. And I mean, it was just, I know on the show we've been critical of some of Kelly, uh, some of the things that Kelly Slater's come out with in the past, mm -hmm. but he, he was, at that event, he was so engaged with people asking around, like, what do you think? Like, what's good? What's not, what's not good? What's working? Are you excited? Like, you could see he was so personally, emotionally invested in this project and this event. And, uh, and, and to see that thing through over 10 years and to see it all come together, I just think is, is an absolutely phenomenal achievement. And I really take my hat off to him. Yeah. Props to you, Kelly Slater. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So while, uh, while Rue was in Lemoore, California, I was on pretty much the opposite side of the spectrum down in La Saladita in central Mexico for the Mexi Log Fest. And how, how did you end up getting an invite to that? So I've actually, I've tried to get an invite for a couple of years now, but yeah, it's an invite only event and it's actually pretty difficult to get in. So I was always kind of like, oh, maybe next year, oh, maybe next year. And one of my oldest friends from back home, Justin Quintals, he's done pretty well in the event in the past and he's a, he's a really amazing longboarder. And last minute he couldn't make the event. He was at the boardroom show in California and the contest director said, oh, that's fine. Um, do you have any any guys from Florida that you know that might want to do the event that you could recommend? And and he kind of generously threw out my name. And yeah, so big shout out to Justin for that, because out of I've done a lot of surf events, especially when I was younger. And, and out of all the ones I've ever participated in, this was by far the most fun I've, I've, I've had at, at one. And the most prestigious, maybe. I mean, it's it's really in like an A-list longboard event, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's pretty much the the biggest one that longboarding has. Longboarding 
especially traditional style longboarding doesn't really fit into the WSL. It's not really a priority of theirs. So there's no tour around it. So it's kind of one-off and invitational events and outside of maybe Joel's events, which are a bit of smaller field, which we'll the, the talk about. The, yeah, the duct tape events. Um, yeah, I think this is pretty much the biggest one. So yeah, it was. I was super honored to be able to be a part of it. And, we're all cheering for you back in the office. It was really, we were bummed that there wasn't a webcast. Yeah, it was just kind of leaky social media drip of the event. Yeah, and it, so it, it was a slightly peculiar format as well, wasn't it? The, the way that the contest worked was a little bit weird. Yeah, so the, the format's different than anything, not only that I've participated in, but that I've seen. It, it basically it takes a, a field of, there's 80 men invited to the event and 40 females, and they run it in, in rather than an elimination comp- competition format where you would have six surfers or four surfers or two surfer heat um, and basically take the top half. Uh, this ran more of a round robin inspired format. So you had the whole field and had them have multiple kind of randomized opportunities to surf. So in out of the 80 men, they would divide it into 24 man heats uh, and you surfed three first round heats against different competitors at different times a day. So you had a morning heat, an afternoon heat, a midday heat. So yeah, you really did have a lot of opportunity and it ran the, you know, the lion's share of the contest was was round one. So no one was eliminated for a week, which is really unique in, in, in surfing. So when they took the quarterfinal cut, they took your top two scores from all three heats and then your top one score, uh, your high scoring wave and multiplied it by two put it in the whole pool, and then just kind of cut out the top 16 from there. So, yeah, it was a really unique format. And it was also unique in that the men's and women's prize perfs was the same, and they got to surf at the same time of day. So no one got the short end of the stick. That's very cool. Yeah, it was really cool, and it was it was designed around being more of like a community-building event rather than competitive. Before the, the – quarterfinals and on you didn't even know what the scores were so you kind of had an idea of where you were in the field but it wasn't like oh harry knight needs a a nine in this heat to make it so it it really took out a lot of the 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 competition out of it which was especially for its purposes it it was a really really cool format so when you say it was a community building thing you, you don't mean for that part of mexico you mean for the longboard community yeah so the longboard community isn't quite like shortboarding in that there's the tour where everyone's spending a lot of time together. It's a, you know, there's surfers from all over the world. Like just in, in my specific accommodations, there were surfers from, you know, the East and West Coast of the U.S., Central America. There was surfers from Brazil, uh, Uruguay. There was a group from, from France. So there's these people that are, are practicing longboarding at a really high level from all over the world, but they don't have time to... There isn't really an opportunity to cross paths very often. So this kind of gave a framework to get all these people from different places together that doesn't otherwise exist. Right. Which is really cool. And and, and it was stretched over a whole week as well. So that you and you guys were in quite a small place, right? Yeah. So, so everyone was really kind of getting to know each other as well. Yeah. And that's a that's another thing in that La Saladita is a really small, almost sleepy fishing town. Uh, so everyone that was in town for the event or everyone that was in the town was, was there for the event, whether it was photographers, the musicians that were a part of it, the, the surfers in the event, spectators that came, it was really, really close quarters. So it was almost like a music festival and that you get to know everyone super quickly that you're staying around. There's been uh, the, just as a sidetrack, we've been talking a little bit at Surf Simply about doing a 
satellite project in the UK and Cornwall possibly this September, all mm -hmm. still a little bit up in the air. But, uh, but there's been talk as well about doing a satellite project there. Do you think it would be a good location for us to take some, some level three or four guests and, and, I mean, maybe specifically focus on traditional longboarding coaching? Yeah, so coaching-wise and competing-wise, like this is the, just the perfect canvas for, for longboarding. Uh, that's pretty much all I could... One of the things I was thinking about most while I was there is how perfectly suited towards learning new maneuvers this place is, especially for our level three or four guests who are want to learn to cross-step and, and kind of conceptually know when's the right time to nose-ride versus cutting back. This is You couldn't dream up uh, a better scenario, unless maybe, of course, it was in a pool. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's almost <laughs> yeah. ironic, isn't it? It's like the Lamore event and the, the Mexi Logfest, you know, they're almost like complete opposite ends of the spectrum. One is like high-performance shortboarding in an artificial wave pool, and one is traditional longboarding out in the ocean, not even, a, not even webcast in a really small, just kind of little soulful community. But actually, the common theme with both of them is the consistency of the wave. Yeah, that's really what brought both of them to life. And that's, you know, ex especially for a longboard competition, I've never been in an event where the wave is so reliable. You know, you, you're going to have, you know, two sets ever heat. Um, the length of ride is is actually quite similar to that in Lemoore. You know, a, a competitor scoring ride would definitely be over a minute long. So there's a lot of time to show different aspects of the approach. And how did the old uh, how did the old Asher King Dicky knee hold up to the uh, low rides? Yeah, that that was leading up to the event. As our regular listeners would know, I had a, an MCL injury, so I had to kind of sprint towards recovery. But it, it did well for the event. I kind of used up. My knee, it's very sore now, but I was pretty <laughs> proud of how it went. Uh, yeah, the, the, the knee held up and yeah, that was, a, that was a great part of it. But yeah, as just going back to what you said, it was so funny that this was going on at the same time as the event in Lemoore because they, they pretty much were the opposite side of the coin. One was really high performance surfing in an in, in artificial environment. One was obviously traditional style surfing. One was more of a stadium atmosphere yeah, as you said in yours, where you have the bleachers, and in every sense, the Mexi Logfest was so far removed from that, just because of the size of the town and the spectator area. It was, it was very small, and, and you know, I went into the event knowing no one, and I feel like I left with you know a hundred new of my closest friends. And I think you left one of your friends there, isn't he? Tommy's still there? Yeah, Tommy came down for the last two days and he actually just stayed there. He was like, <laughs> oh, this is pretty good. I think I'm going to finish my vacation here. Tommy has, in fact, managed to uh, record a couple of little interviews for us. So hopefully yes. he'll uh, bring, that, bring that stuff back with him next week and we can get that edited up for the next show. But yeah, one of the, the highlights of the event for me was sort of the accessibility of, of, of the surfers and the, the artists there to, to everyone. So... Um, I can't really think of another example in sport where you do have that much, that close of a community between the elite and someone just there spectating. Like if you're a really big football fan, you can't go out and, you know, throw the pigskin with Tom Brady. You, know, you can't go play a couple downs with him, but you can easily go to Saladita and share a wave the length of the point with CJ Nelson. Like You can do that without even trying. You could go to the bar at night and talk about board design with uh, Cassia Miador over on Margarita. And that doesn't even exist really in our shortboard side. Like even around a, a shortboarding event, it's not like you could go out and just, you know, catch a few with John John Florence. And 
a lot of that, I'm sure, is a function of of how big the longboarding community is versus the shortboarding community. But I don't know. It felt really special that you know the enthusiasts of longboarding are into it enough that something like this could exist with the prize purse and people traveling all over the world. But it's still small enough that you could kind of re- retain that sense of community and yeah, and, and have it turn out this way so you know we, we've got a lot of listeners that are really interested in nose riding and traditional longboarding and we've had over the last year or two at surf simply more and more people come along who want to specifically work on that would you say for those people that it's worth their time uh, if they can carve out their vacation time to go down to the mexi log fest and hang out there and get to surf with some of these guys that's an excellent segue i mean if, if you want to improve your surfing Taking it in a two-week chunk and going down there and and watching these guys surf the wave and then using the week after to work on your own surfing would be just the best way imaginable. Because I won't lie, it's pretty difficult to get waves during the event, even though there's a lot of waves and everyone's pretty into sharing. You know, it is 120 of the best surfers in the world uh, on longboards surfing a you know one takeoff spot point. So it would be challenging to get waves, but you're going to be able to see a lot in surfers equipment and surfers approaches and you know the timing of when they are nose riding versus when they're surfing from the tail that would be really tough to show in a video because you know when you're watching a surf film or even our coaching clips you're so zoomed in on the surfer that it's tough to actually see the canvas yeah so that's why we need to get our vr coaching technology together exactly that's another episode so yeah i i did a couple days before the event there and i felt like that really helped with the approach but actually seeing the level that everyone surfed at and, and seeing everyone's different equipment, it made me come or go away from it having so much that I wanted to work on and so much like board design that I wanted to try. And yeah, I wish I would have stayed an extra week. That's very cool. So I have been having this problem that I we were talking about before where I'm just getting old and my back's giving out. And my big 910 Bing levitator that I love, which is nearly 24 inches wide, when I mm-hmm. when there's a current going to the north, you know, here at the beach, and I end up having like a mile walk nearly back to my house. So that's devastating. And I'm using it twice a day. At the end of the week, my back is really starting to go. And also, Maureen, my partner, who really likes longboarding, but you know, just it, it, she's she's quite a petite girl, and she doesn't have a lot of strength, and uh, and she wants a, a something that's a little smaller under arms. So I was looking at getting a big pocket knife, and she's been looking at at boards as well that are a little narrower and lighter. That f- so I was wondering, like. First of all, what are the really popular models that people are using? You know, like the in the pink and the levitator and the pocket knife are the three that like leap out at me as mm-hmm. being really popular nose riding models or really good go to nose riding models. Uh, and also, were there specific models that the women are using um, as opposed to the men that are a little bit narrower, perhaps, or, or lighter glassed, or how are they different? All right. So I'm going to try to give you, I'm going to probably give you a longer response. Did you want it on that one? <laughs> no, but, no, hit me. I'm ready. Yeah, longboard design is is still basically templated off off three styles of boards in a really oversimplified version that kind of at the end of, of when longboards were popular, before it became the shortboard revolution, when longboards were just surfboards, they kind of evolved kind of away from each other. There was a kind of a, a specific California style longboard. There was more of like a Takayama Hawaii or Nueva style longboard. And then the the type of longboards that developed in Australia. And now that there is this resurgence, they, there's been a lot added to the bottom contours and the rail shape and, and specifics, but the shapes are are really similar. So what you and I have been riding are really big parallel railed uh, logs, you know, and that's very much a California inspired design because 
the waves that those were developed for were, were very soft. Uh, nose riding specifically is a product of the amount of lift generated by the board. And a really big parallel railed board does a good job getting a lot of lift on a, on a very weak wave. You know, when the wave doesn't have the power, you, you kind of, it's just like, you know, sailing. If, if there wasn't much wind, I'd put up a really big sail, right? So that's where the inspiration for our boards have, have come down now or come from. Um, so, but, so by contrast, uh, and, and you know, the Levitate is an example of one with those parallel rails. Yeah. By contrast, if, if you go on the Bing website, listeners, and you look at models like the pocket knife that I just referred to, and I think I'm actually just going to go and buy one after the episode, <laughs> <laughs> but they, they're actually wider near the tail and then they sort of get narrower towards the nose. Yeah. So that would sort of be an Australia inspired design. Now, in, in contrast to the waves that they have in California, the waves aren't huge in Australia, especially the East Coast, but there's a lot of curve to the face. So that's where the lift is coming from, is that water flow and, and how aggressive it is up the wave face. So there's there's not really any lack of that. And our boards would actually almost generate too much lift and slide out through the tail. So what they did to, to deal with that is they pushed the hips back. They took some surface area out of the nose. Um, and the board becomes more maneuverable with, with less kind of necessity for that that lift. And it's a really user-friendly design. Uh, for example, a lot of lighter surfers surf those. A lot of women surf them because they don't quite have the, the force to push on the tail. And those were probably the most popular uh, boards throughout the event, especially because Solidita is a, a really perfect wave. You don't really need as much lift. Like I was probably in the minority on how big my board was, where there was a, a lot of really successful surfers riding 9.2s, um, Actually, Mele, who that that is her model, um, the the pocket knife. She she did amazing on that board. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's just kind of a, a different approach to the wave, and and it is a lot easier to handle. And then on the exact opposite side of the coin of that Aussie style design, you'd find like a, a Hawaiian inspired longboard, especially the ones that Takayama developed, like the in the pink, where rather than the wide point back, the wide points way forward. And um, they've got they look more like a, a sort of a, a teardrop with a wide... Yeah. I always think they could look kind of like a, a blue whale with all that volume yeah, up at the front. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, um, that was basically designed in a similar idea as the Aussie boards, where you don't need to generate much lift. The Hawaiian waves have a lot more power, um, whereas they, most of the waves that these boards were designed for, still they have a lot of power without the curve. So the narrower tail allows them to do big sweeping turns on that style of waves while still having a, a wide enough nose. Uh, to nose ride from and one of my favorite takeaways from the event is everyone was riding different equipment and there was a lot of variation but it all worked you know there was there was all these designs really did work it was just how they tied their approach into it so if you are kind of a smaller surfer there there's easily a a, a board that you can use and it'll thrive on and you're not actually going to lose anything out and yeah, a lot of it's just tailoring your approach towards what you want to ride. Are there any models that you would throw out there for female surfers or people who just want, you know, narrower, lighter boards to carry? So I'm a massive fan of the pocket knife, which you mentioned. Yeah, it's a it's a really well-designed surfboard. It's has that kind of easier-to-handle style without taking it too far. Um, it's user-friendly, but it's still, you're going to be able to nose-ride it and turn from it. Does Jesse have a pocket knife? Jesse has a Black Rose Dark Horse. She got the same board as mine, but a little smaller. But yeah, that's a pretty big board. 
She was um, she was looking at a pocket knife at one point, wasn't she? I think it would it would fit her surfing pretty well. Um, there's another brand called Kio. Kio is one of the most popular events, and it's the same idea. It looked really similar on paper, maybe a little bit more aggressive bottom contours. It kind of brings it more back traditional towards the era. But um, yeah, between the Kios and the uh, the Bing pocket knife, those are going to really really work well. I ride boards made in Florida by uh, Black Rose, and just as a shameless plug, they're working on a, <laughs> a model right now of that same design. I uh, I don't think it has a name yet, but uh, one of their French team riders was bringing one down to the event, and I think it'll end up being his. His name's Nathan Sedouin, and yeah, he's kind of a smaller surfer, and it's it's sort of specifically built towards that. So yeah, there's a ton of of, of options out there. It's people ask so much about, you know, like long boards that are yeah. just manageable. That that was one of the things that I learned the most about the event is I've just pushed myself so far down this route of riding these like really oversized heavy long boards and they they work so good for some things, but seeing someone who's come at it from a totally different angle, who's, you know, has different inspiration for their board, different inspiration for their approach, seeing how well it worked for them and just how it's, you know, two sides of the same coin was really cool. And it was like, it was a bit eye open, you know, and I get a bit opinionated about longboards sometimes. So it, it was so nice to see that, you know, there is a lot of different ways to approach surfing a wave like this, you know, and it, it wasn't like one was right or one was wrong. It was, it was just different. And in a competition format, it was amazing to see how well the judges deciphered that. You know, you have two people that, that are approaching the wave in, in opposite fashions. And I thought they did an amazing job of just you know, identifying it as what is good surfing, how critical were the maneuvers, how close were you to the pocket, you know. I love the description that they have of the criteria on the website where they purposefully kept it really open, you know, but they brought it right back at the end. They were like, remember, pocket is king. Like if you're surfing in the pocket, that's good, whatever your style is. And I think that's a really good, I think that's a good lesson for people to take away Mm -hmm. about their own surfing. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can approach a wave, but if you're riding in the pocket, then... Yeah, and it's something that we teach you know, basically as soon as people start surfing on the open face. One of our principles is is that, you know, surfing is sort of this game of staying as close to the whitewater as you can without getting stuck into it. And it's funny to see how scalable that is. You know, it's true when you're learning your first cutback as it is for, you know, CJ Nelson, the top longboarder in the world is still he's just he's doing more aggressive maneuvers, but the game is still the same. You're still trying to perform those maneuvers to stay as close as you can to the whitewater without getting put there. So could you see a longboard event in the wave pool? Ah, so Just to tie the two sections together. Yes, I think that the footage I've seen of Slater's wave pool on a smaller setting looks so good for riding a longboard. Um, and that was one of the, th- I was at the longboarding event watching the wave pool event. And I just thought, man, I want to, I want to get a board made for that wave so bad and ride a longboard there. Cause other than wingnut, I haven't seen any footage of it. But yeah, I saw a lot of commentary after the event on both sides that was like, you know, championing the wave pool and, or saying, you know, oh, all events need to be like maxi log fast, like keep it grassroots and I just think that in 2018, um, there's plenty of room for both. And that that needs to be a big takeaway, especially just watching them back to back that, yeah, it's not necessarily, you know, you know, wave pools are the future, but so are events like this, the standalone events and that, 
And it doesn't have to be binary in that there's a lot of enjoyment to going to both events. And yeah, that, you know, we got room for both. We've got a quick list of email from Jason Claremont, who is asking about different takeoff techniques. He says, on what type or size of wave and or in what conditions should I be thinking about taking off somewhat down the line, more horizontally, uh, versus going straight down the face and trying to do a bottom turn? Are there certain scenarios that generally call for one strategy over the other? Beach breaks, fast moving waves, etc. I find myself almost always looking to go somewhat horizontally, mostly on mid-length single fins, but I find sometimes I'm either skidding down the face on my rail or I'm way out ahead of the pocket. Good question, Jason. So this is uh, a really big part of uh, what we spend a lot of time coaching. It's right at the end of, of what we refer to as, as level two and, and moving into uh, what we call level three on the, on the Surf Simply Tree of Knowledge. When you first paddle out the back, obviously the, the, the first thing that you're trying to do when you're catching an unbroken wave is just paddling in nice and straight at 90 degrees to the wave, being picked up and then, and then dropping down the face of the wave. And at some point you start to think about trying to, instead of surfing straight into the beach, surfing across the wave face. And at, initially that's done, you know, we, we paddle in nice and straight to the beach, we get to our feet and then we start making that gentle turn to, to take the board down the wave. But further down the line, what we'll tend to move towards is actually taking the board in that direction, angling the board on takeoff, getting the board going across the wave face before we even get to our feet. And that angle takeoff is one of, probably one of the most nuanced skills that, that most people go through learning. There's so much going on in terms of not just being in the right place at the right time at the right speed, but then picking the right angle and leaning into the wave with the right amount of pressure for what the wave's doing. That There's an awful lot of, uh, of ways and, and situations that that can go wrong and, and cause you to trip up. So hopefully we can, we can tidy up a few of those for you. And, and, and as we talk about and try and answer this question, I think it's just worth bearing in mind that we can talk about general principles, but that won't help you very much with the how much and when to do everything. That's when you really need to have a coach with a camera actually looking at you specifically on a specific wave. Yeah, it, it, like I say, this is a very nuanced skill and there's an awful lot of, you know, we'll, we'll chat as much as we can about the, the various different things that can go wrong or that you might want to keep an eye on. But, but the thing that's most important is working out which of those things you want to you wanna really focus your energy into. Anyway, in terms of when you want to be thinking about either taking a more vertical approach to a wave or a more horizontal approach to the wave, there is actually, of course, there's a third way of taking off on a wave, which is to fade the takeoff, a, 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 an almost reversed angle where you, you paddle in and instead of leaning the board in to take you down the line away from the white water, you actually angle in towards the white water. There's a couple of situations where that's actually a more optimum uh, method to take off. But to start with, when we take uh, somebody from uh, the, 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 their first out-the-back experiences and we start to move them more, more and more and more towards surfing down the line of the wave, we pretty much start talking 100% about an angled takeoff. And we, we, we take somebody almost completely away from the idea of, of dropping down the wave face and bottom turning. The reason for that is that all the stuff that you want to do that involves going across on the wave face and starting to perform maneuvers 
the the thing that you need is speed and you can get a lot of speed and and down the line projection by dropping to the bottom of the wave and doing a bottom turn but your timing and your technique in that bottom turn needs to be really really spot on and if it's not it's going to leave you stuck at the bottom of the wave with very little speed whereas paddling in leaning in getting the board going down the line and hopefully keeping the board higher up on the wave face is going to give you lots and lots of speed which gives you lots of options so that we tend to drag people towards that as people progress more through what we call level three we then start to talk again about about going back to dropping straight down the bottom of the wave and start to talk about bottom turn technique and and, and the timing on that now as you said, Jason, you know, you're finding yourself angling your takeoff almost 100% of the time trying to get the board going down the line. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. It's, it's actually one of the most common mistakes that we see with sort of level three fairly experienced surfers is once you get in the habit of angling your takeoff, you want to angle your takeoff and kind of go off down the line all the time. And you end up surfing way too far out on the face. So it's it's kind of funny that we try and teach people to angle takeoff. And as soon as they get good at it, then we try and teach people to go back to to taking off straight and once they can do both really well then you can start deciding okay well which one do I want to do on this specific wave yeah very much so so in terms of when you might want to think about dropping to the wave a little bit more the first thing obviously is you, you don't you need to spend some time making sure that you can comfortably perform that bottom turn and get yourself back out in the wave face and and, and a good bottom turn with with lots of compression and timing is really fundamental one of the most common mistakes I see people making is dropping down a wave that's not big enough to generate any speed. When the waves get below about shoulder high, you're just not going to generate very much speed from that initial drop. As you paddle in and you get to your feet and you drop down the wave face, you're not going to generate enough speed and energy to then turn that through a bottom turn to come up and hit the lip you're going to be much much better off holding that angled takeoff generating some speed and then maybe dropping back down the wave to come up and, and start surfing more vertically on the wave face but that initial takeoff is probably much better being angled if the waves are below about shoulder high so when we talk about angling the takeoff we just need to be very careful that we're not confusing which way you're paddling with which way you're directing the board as you come to your feet and drop down the wave. Yeah. And the way that we coach it at Surf Simply is we have these three lines. We talk about the hunting line, which is taking you to just outside the takeoff spot, the, the runway line, which is building your speed as you come to the takeoff spot, and then your angle, which is once you know that you've caught the wave, which way are you angling the board? Yeah, which, which way are you directing the board as you're getting to your feet and, and, and getting set? Yeah, especially I think those last two are really important to keep separate. Your your line that you're using to catch the wave and your angle line, they are they can be symbiotic, like they they do tie into each other, but they also are mutually exclusive. You can use one to assist to the other, but there's times when they're totally separate lines. Yeah. So so one rule of thumb that is often helpful to give to people when we're first just trying to catch waves independently on our own, is we say to people, if the wave is very, very soft point straight at the beach in order to catch it because if you have a bit of an angle on your paddle you're, you're just not you're going to go off the side and not catch it and if the wave looks steeper then you would want to angle a little bit more but actually that 
can also in itself be a little bit misleading because it's more nuanced than that. You actually need to paddle straight to catch a soft wave. But as soon as you know you've caught it, you then want to start angling because dropping to the bottom of that soft wave won't give you enough speed to bring you back up the face. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so yeah, the, the things that we're, the, the issue that we're dealing with here is, is really what is the end goal? What are we trying to achieve? And it's something that an awful lot of surfers don't do is as you're paddling into the wave, you should really be thinking about what your first maneuver is going to be. As you look back over your shoulder and you're seeing that wave coming in, you want to be thinking about what's the wave likely to do in the next 10 seconds. And based on that, what are you going to try and achieve? And the end goal really, as, as I kind of alluded to earlier, is we need some speed. Anything that we're going to try and do on the wave, we need forwards momentum uh, to be able to achieve that. If it's a good sized wave and it's reasonably steep, we can be pretty confident that we'll pick up a lot of speed by dropping down that wave face. And we may then be able to redirect that back up towards the lip. If the wave's relatively small and relatively soft, dropping down the wave face isn't going to provide us with any speed. So we really want to then be thinking about angling the takeoff. If the wave's going to peel off at a million miles an hour and it's going to, you know, really race off away from you, then dropping to the bottom of the wave and trying to bottom turn is obviously going to be a, a, a pretty pointless technique that we're just going to get caught back in the whitewater. Equally, if the wave has no shoulder, then an angled takeoff may just carry you out to where there is no speed at all. So just to build on what you said, would I be right in telling Jason that when you are looking at that wave and when you are thinking about your first maneuver, it's sort of your two options are, do I need long sustained speed? You know, am I looking down the line and seeing a bunch of shoulder and in, in need to handle it appropriately to keep that? Or do I need a short burst of speed, which a bottom turn would handle it? Will I gain more speed with my next maneuver rather than needing that initial long sustained speed from the high line? Yeah, I guess that's not far off, although I suspect, uh, again, it's it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. There, there are so many variables, and we, we've got to take all of those variations into account. And that's, that's where the looking back over your shoulder as you're paddling, and like I say, trying to make a decision. And initially, when you make that decision about what's the wave going to do in the next 10 seconds, you're going to get it wrong a lot. Because if we're not used to doing it, then we, 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 don't, uh, we don't have a lot of data for our brain to operate on. But the more that you do it, the better you'll get at predicting it. And therefore, the better you'll get at deciding whether to drop down to the bottom of the wave or to hold that high line. So, you know, these are all very general principles that are hard, as I say, to use specifically when you go out in the water next time, Jason. But if it's helpful, here's three really common mistakes that, that I see. Number one... People get in the habit of wanting to make it down the line, wanting to make the wave. And so they angle their takeoff too often. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. And the the telltale sign of that is if you watch a video of yourself, you're surfing several meters in front of the white water. Um, you know, in the way that we, they don't like it, the Mexi log I was about to is, say, that's is, a log fest red flag. <laughs> yeah. So angling your takeoff sort of too much and uh, is a really common one. And, um, and you don't want to do that. And you can easily tell just by looking at video of yourself and seeing how far in front of the white water you are. So the, the next error, which kind of like leads on from that one, 
or rather helps you solve that one, is thinking about what you want to do on the wave. So what's the target? What's your first maneuver? What are you going to go for a floater to climb over a section in front of you? Are you going to try and cut back into the pocket? Um, so where, where do you want to be taken to? What's the first piece of white water that you want to try and get your board to hit? And we call that surfing to the targets. So think about where your first target is on the wave and then let how much you angle or don't angle your takeoff be informed by what target you're trying to hit. So th those are kind of, that's kind of like one error in two parts. I guess the third error, which is just a, a kind of unrelated but a really common mistake I see people make, is, as I said, a general principle, very loosely as a rule of thumb, is that the steeper a wave is, often you want to angle a bit more, and if it's and if it's less steep, you kind of generally paddle a bit straighter. A really common error is that people see waves that look like they're going to break really quickly and are standing up really steep, and so they paddle at an angle which actually means that they're going to get into the wave, get over the ledge a little slower, and they often get stuck up at the mm -hmm. lip and then thrown over sideways. So when, the, when a wave is, is so... And let's say sort of a, a wave that's starting to barrel, where the lip is starting to throw out from the top of the wave a little bit, those kind of waves often you want to point dead straight at 90 degrees to the wave, or if the wave's bending in on itself, perhaps even angle your board very slightly in towards the white water. So you're almost angling your board the opposite way from down the line. And then as soon as you come to your feet, very quickly spin the board around under the lip up. I see, I see people make this mistake all the time and go over the, go over the falls sideways on steep waves. A really good place where you see people doing it well is, of course, Chopu, where if you watch, even though it's a left, every single takeoff, the, the board is actually angling at 45 degrees to the right in order to get over that ledge as quickly as possible before they then hook the board around and, and go left just in like a fraction of a heartbeat after they've caught the wave. Yeah, and pretty much all of this discussion just reinforces almost more than any skill this is one where you really want a video camera on the beach uh, or, or, yeah, or a coach helping you because it, it is nuanced and you're going to make a ton of mistakes when it comes to angling takeoffs. And that's that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But you have to have that feedback loop in place. You know, if you're not learning from those mistakes and if you're not if you're not seeing what the error is in regards to maybe getting caught behind the whitewater, being too far away from the whitewater, it is really, really hard to improve. So like if, if you got any any chance like this is a this is one more video camera is really going to help you all right ladies and gentlemen uh before we go we have our what to watches uh, a few little uh, little nuggets to keep you interested asher what do you got oh, for us i loved ocean song by jack coleman um all this talk about wave pools it's like good old-fashioned imperfect california waves with jazz flute with, Epic yeah jazz with jazz flute, flute. Yeah, there's a couple guys surfing in the video that I really, really like their approach. And yeah, it, it's it's relatable surfing. You know, it's the kind of waves that you probably have around your home. And it's it's a couple guys that are having really fun, a lot of fun. So yeah, highly recommend it. Very cool. Uh, my recommendation is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Every year, uh, Surfline run their Wave of the Winter contest to, to see who can, uh, who can get the biggest, baddest, gnarliest wave on the North Shore winter season i believe that this year nathan florence got the uh, got the final nod but at the end of it they always put out their best of video and uh, their wave of the winter for the 2017 2018 season is uh, is now up and it's a, a pretty cool edit uh Rue, what have you got for us well i mean if you haven't seen any of the stuff from the wave pool i would def definitely check out some of the videos that they've put together from that 
Uh, also, I would check out the Mexi Logfest's Instagram feed. There's some cool photos and little video clips on there. And kind of keeping the longboarding vibe going, I uh, have liked Further, which is a little CJ Nelson video about his uh, new longboard model that he's done with uh, Dead Kooks. And it's got a very cool soundtrack called On the Water by Future Islands that I kind of like. So that's my what to watch. And can we, before we wrap up the show, can I give one quick shout out? Mm-hmm. So when I was at the wave pool, I bumped into old friend Esteban Lopez, who I don't know if you know Asher, but I think you know him, don't you, Harry? He used to live here in Nosara and he was just a, a really cool guy who he started Nosara Tico Surf School here in Nosara and just a really cool guy that I became friends with when I first moved here. And about five years ago, he moved to the States. He's Costa Rican and he's moved to LA and he now runs Surf Coach LA. Um, it was super nice guy. Can't recommend him highly enough. So anyone who's looking for some uh, surf lessons in the LA era, check out surfcoachla.com and he's on Instagram is the same thing. And I just want to kind of give a big shout out to him and anyone in the world that has packed up, left the country they were born in, gone to another country and tried to start up a business. It's one of the toughest things you can do. It's, it's intimidating and it's scary. I can't imagine how it would be trying to move to the middle of LA and start up a, a surf coaching business there as an outsider. I'm, I'm, he, he didn't complain about anything, but I think it's been tough, as I'm sure it is for, for, for everyone kind of doing anything remotely like that. So um, a huge respect to him and to anyone out in the world who's done anything like that. Very cool. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that we have time for this episode. Uh, hopefully we'll be back with you a little sooner than we have been in the past. Probably not, though. <laughs> we're very <laughs> busy. Probably we love not, you, though. listeners, but we're just very, very busy. We are very busy. Uh, but yeah, for now, from all of us here, Bye. goodbye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.